easy to say if and but and shoulda, woulda, coulda. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 30 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love, not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who thinks it's easy to say, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Straight into iTunes reviews this week, and I have three kicking iTunes reviews for people around the interwebs. The first one, one of the up-and-coming cycling podcasts by Seth. Semi-Pro, the stuff you bring up in your podcast can help the newest cyclist to the oldest cyclist out there. Subject matter and general smarts about bikes and the products in the sport makes for a good podcast all round. Seth, thank you very much for writing that review. The second one, very good cycling podcast by Lyral Ick. Very good cycling podcast, concise and to the point without a lot of fluff, a lot of interesting information for the amateur racing cyclist, worth a listen. And the final one, very good. I'm 76. I was fourth in the 1967 Tour of Britain. Your podcast is precisely what I'm looking for to get me back on my bike. Keep it up, Damien, from Alan. Well, Alan, Lyrilelic, and Seth, Thank you very much for your reviews. I really appreciate you taking the time out and giving me some feedback so I can keep pumping more effort into this podcast and hopefully get everybody excited about cycling. If you like the show, I would love if you'd take the time out to drop a review like these guys have. It really does mean the world to me. So if we move to cycling news this week, I'm not going to go into too much depth. Cavendish has started the season well in Qatar with a win of stage three. Lee Howard has won at the Mallorca Challenge. Well done. He couldn't quite make it in race one, but race two he came through with precision sprinting timing. Also, the Cyclocross Worlds have been run and won for 2013. Voss and Nice showing why they are the legends of the sport. Voss especially. Is there anything that this woman cannot do? I think she's amazing. Also, it was interesting to see Neil Stevens' name floating around some of the race reports. He's been keeping very, very quiet since Matt White was sacked. I'm sure he's one that a few still want to hear from, at least a yay or nay. So, how about it, Neil? Let's get to the nuts and bolts this week. And what happened to me this week is I sat down to write this week's episode. And as I sat there... I started to feel this horrible pain in my neck and I've been finding that I've actually been fiddling with my bike position over the last couple of weeks and on one occasion I failed miserably so much so that I came back with a sore neck. I fixed the bike issue after the ride but I still had the discomfort so my neck was still aching so I started hunting around for ways to fix my neck and instead of rubbing in some tiger balm which I would just normally do I went straight to my number one mobility resource which is mobilitywad.com. And looking into how I can stretch my neck out. And I also spent a lot of time at the computer. And so I'm sure that that contributed to it in some way. And I found some great resources, which are linked to in the show notes. And they're probably the best mobility areas to focus on for combating sitting in chair But if you have any issues in this region as well, like tightness in the neck, shoulders, thoracic spine, 
a great way to open up the chest and help out with your posture. But the episode isn't about that. This process got me thinking about the link between the body and the bike. I've just finished reading Chung and Alan's book, Cutting Edge Cycling, and there is a chapter that Alan writes in there about bike fit systems. And going through that, something just didn't sit right with me when it came to bike fit systems. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. That was until I came across Steve Hogg. Now, Steve Hogg is an Australian bike fitter that takes a holistic and individualistic approach to bike fitting, meaning he starts with an understanding of the rider's body. Okay, some systems do that, but he also finds its limitations and then uses a neurological basis to fit a human to a bike. This may not mean much to you right now, but what I want to do is actually go through his philosophies. But before that, I want to say that it's no secret that I am a fan of frameworks. But I also understand their place and that they don't work in every situation. I strongly believe that bike fit is one of those places. And when you shove something as complex as a human being on top of a fixed object like a bike, a formula using averages as guides does not work. Even though some of these systems do take into account flexibility, etc., there is just more to it. And Band-Aid approaches won't fix long-term overcompensation, mobility, and structural issues. So this week... I have broken down a speech that Steve Hogg gave in 2007. There's a transcript on his website. You can actually go and read it after you've listened to this, but I'm also linking to another article that he wrote on his website, which documents the basic premise behind his bike fitting philosophy. It goes into a slightly different area of what he's talking about with this speech. And so the speech itself is called The Anatomy of the Bike Position. I don't want to read all of it out to you because I don't see the point, but I want to pluck bits of wisdom out of it and then try and get you to understand them possibly a little further and just add my little twist onto them so it can hopefully pad out and you can start seeing where he comes from and why it aligns so well with everything that I've been talking about at Semi-Pro Cycling so far. So, I will read the start of it though because it kind of sets up where he's coming from. All modern thinking about how to fit a human to a bike is reductionist in approach. Take a complex system of interactions like a human being, quantify it somehow and fit it to a bike. Because it's a complex system, break down that complexity into bite-sized pieces by examining aspects of the interaction with the bike in a narrow sense. The approach might be strictly biomechanical, perhaps measurement-based, statistical norm-based, or whatever. It may have a proprietary name, Fitkit, Bioracer, Wobble Nort, Spring to Mind, though there are others. This is how the world thinks of bike fit process. It's a succession of steps of narrow focus, but without any overarching idea of holistic intent. And that's what I mean by a reductionist approach. The formula-driven methods this type of approach engenders are prevalent throughout the cycling world and don't work optimally for large numbers of people in any way that can be shown or explained. I spent a large part of my working life getting results for people that the above style of thinking has failed. There are two major forces on a bike rider, gravity and wind drag. That should be self-evident and beyond argument. Our pattern of muscular enlistment changes as we change our relationship to gravity and wind resistance increases as the square of the increase in speed. It follows that how we relate our bodies to gravity and how we equip ourselves to overcome wind drag are the keys to optimal performance. Another necessity is comfort. I would define lack of comfort as muscles being enlisted for purposes they weren't designed for and or for periods they can't cope with. 
that's a pretty good summary to start the ball rolling. As far as where he sits, you can tell that he wants nothing to do with any proprietary systems that just shove people into whatever mold that they're trying to fit, and then that's the end of it. You can tell now that the way he's going to approach this is going to be totally different to any other bike fit system that's out there. He breaks it down so that the musculature works in two ways, posturally and phasically. If beset by a challenge, the brain will always prioritize the muscles acting posturally. He goes on to explain what the brain chooses as far as the priority, and the priority is for your body to keep you upright and breathing, over getting you to move forward. This relates to the neurological basis to an optimal bike position, and to be most efficient, we need to sit on a bike in such a way as to enlist the minimum amount of postural musculature. When needlessly enlisted, these postural muscles rob heartbeats, blood flow, and oxygen from muscles that propel the bike, and by doing so, diminish performance. So by eliminating all reliance on postural muscles for structural stability, it frees up the body's need to use energy in areas that will not help you move the bike forward. It's kind of take care of bike posture, and you'll be rewarded with a relaxed and more efficient body. The next point he brings up is minimum effort, maximum gain where the only way that this is achievable on a UCI legal bike is to have the seat set at the minimum distance behind the bottom bracket, which I think is 50 millimeters, where this allows the rider to cantilever their torso out from their pelvis with no more effort required on the upper body during periods of high intensity than the minimum necessary to steer and control the bike. Not getting into the bottom half, but talking about the bottom half in relation to the similarities between this and the actual body composition of a cyclist in the first place. All a cyclist needs muscle-wise in their upper body is enough to steer and control a bike when standing or sitting. Anything more is superfluous. So it kind of moves on this idea that all you need to do is hold yourself upright and have enough strength to move around and it's the same with the muscles that you're actually enlisting to sit in this position in the first place there is no need to enlist more muscles than is necessary because then that energy can then be focused in other areas and systems that are important in creating the energy in the first place to get you moving now one of the big areas in the upper body is the lungs so the lungs we all know are the thing that actually transforms the oxygen we breathe in into energy. So the importance of the efficiency on having lungs working at maximum capacity is incredible, especially because it's an endurance sport cycling and you need this. I'm going to read directly from observation five here, where there are 20 torso muscles used in respiration. Of those 20, 18 have postural implications, which mean that they can be used to breathe with or they can be used to bear weight and stabilize with. If you want to breathe to fullest capacity, then these muscles need to be able to relax to allow full breathing. This isn't possible if they carry tension because they are being used to bear weight or resist pedaling forces. So this idea is that when you're setting up a bike, ensure that your forces for your arms and your shoulders and everything up top is just at its bare minimum when it comes to the work that it's actually doing. And what that will do, it will swap the muscles, the ones that would normally be keeping you up and working when you're working quite hard, because working quite hard is the real test when it comes to anything to do with bike position. Now, if you're working quite hard, then if you're leaning over and your arms are functioning, then you're wasting actual muscles and energy. But then if you take 
yourself back and balance yourself back, the freedom that it allows is now for your lungs to expand fully and get as much energy and oxygen into your system as possible. And this is a major benefit of Steve Hogg's approach to bike fitting. And so if you can simply think about it like this, lungs need room to function. And if the muscles needed can either be used for postural or breathing, choose one. Which one are you going to choose? Of course, you're going to choose breathing because endurance sport needs breaths, needs air, needs big amounts of air. And so supporting yourself on your arms is a waste. And it kind of moves into this aerodynamic thing, which is more for time trialists. But the interesting idea is that it goes against my observations I see in the pro peloton. The focus of aerodynamics on over everything else seems to be the norm rather than the exception these days. Greg Henderson's narrow bars, Castelli's introduction of aero clothing, etc., 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 or you can even get to Ryder Hydradal's seat to handlebar drop. And what about Cadell's time trial position? Structurally, the trade between comfort for increased aerodynamic efficiency can be made, which is noted by Hogg, even when effective lung capacity is reduced. So he's not discrediting that there is a role to play when it comes to aerodynamics. The thing is, though, And this is the big caveat of this position. In order to be able to ride in these positions, you must be able to handle the extra stress produced in the lumbar and or thoracic spine. There is a need in this case to put time into mobility, stability, and structural work. So this is the balance that you need to trade off because the position, if it's going to be more forward and rely more on your arms and shoulders or you know, enlisting those muscles that are supporting you, then you're going to have to balance that out because there's going to be extra stress in your back that you need to account for somewhere. And this is not for everybody. The everyday rider has massive limitations when it comes to doing this type of stuff because they're starting with a different framework in the beginning. Which brings up an interesting question is, how much time do you spend on functional fitness? I know we've talked about this before, but I promised myself I was going to put more time into it. And it's one of those things. It always falls through the cracks. It always turns into something that I never have time for. Because the funny thing is, with any of the pros or anyone that has a big seat to handlebar drop or any funky position with their time trial bikes or whatever... They move into that position over time. No one just drops into that position and then that's it. The incremental changes that are made are probably done over years rather than days or weeks. And at the same time, they're also working on their body to be able to get into those positions. I remember somebody saying a long time ago that Michael Rogers spent two or three years, maybe more, to move down only two or three centimeters in his time trial position. So that kind of gives you a picture of the dedication and commitment and hard work it takes to get down to those levels. If you're thinking someone like Cadell, where his position is just so low on the front of that bike, he would have been working for that position his entire career. He's, what, 34 now, and he would have started when he was 14, I'm sure, road riding when he was 20 or whatever. And so he spent the last 15 years probably working to that position. That is a hell of a lot of time to set your body up. And it goes the other way as well. Observation number six from Hogg is an optimal bike position is a reflection of the functional abilities of the rider and considers the purpose that they want to put their body and bike to for the period they would do it. There is something that stuck out when I first read this. If we just revisit Cadell 
And so you look at his position, it's a time trial position. And what do you max out on a time trial on the pro circuit? You know, an hour, an hour and a half maybe at its greatest, maybe two hours at a team time trial. And he would be maximizing his position for that amount of time. That is a mindset shift for me. I know it seems obvious when you start thinking about it this way, but you look at breaking it down from the shortest events like a sprint and you have Chris Hoy with crazy narrow bars. He's a large man using crazy narrow bars to ride 200 meters. That's it. You know, more, a couple more laps, but that's it. He's he's not doing massive amounts of time on that bike. And then you go up to like a four kilometer pursuit and you'll see that the position is very aggressive when you get to a four-kilometer pursuit. There is no way you could even hold that position in a time trial, which is kind of the next thing you would look at. And you look at the one or two hours, and you look at Cadell's position. And so these positions are all adapted for the type of riding that they're doing. And it also goes all the way to road riding. So for me this year, my maximum road race is going to be around four hours, and probably my training for that will be as well. So So my goal is to adjust my bike so that I'm comfortable for four hours of training and racing. It's a long process when you think about it like that, because how many training rides do I do that are four hours? You know, not that many. And so I need to really start thinking over time, if something is niggling me, then I need to adjust it, but I need to make incremental adjustments. Otherwise, it's going to be even worse. Luckily, when it comes to four hours, all I'm aiming for is maintaining my posture for that entire four hours. So it might not be so hard to do. And that's the interesting thing that I never really thought about before, that I can actually go for a ride and come back at the end of it. And if I'm in pain or something's not working, then I can look at the time period that I'm doing it, when the pain started, and then start to adjust based on that. So hopefully any pain that's been caused on the bike can then be shifted. And then over time of being conscious of this, I can get rid of it altogether. Now, that's an interesting question as well. How much do you actively consider your comfort on the bike for the time that you spend riding? Okay, so moving along to the next point, and it's symmetry. A bike is a symmetrical apparatus in a positional sense. Hogg goes on to say, I have positioned I don't know how many thousands of riders, and I'm still looking for the first symmetrical one. That's a pretty interesting point because everybody probably thinks they're symmetrical, and if you're not analyzing how you're riding or you're not getting bike fits or someone else looking at you, then you're really not going to know. And he goes on further and says, when an asymmetrical rider is placed on a symmetrical bike, they will always maladapt. One of the major tasks of positioning is to achieve the greatest level of functional symmetry for the rider consistent with the limits imposed on them by their structure and degree of function. So this comes back down to that mobility, stability, and function stuff. And this point is also something that's opened my eyes to the direct connection and relationship that your body forms with your bike. In a way, your bike can begin to form your body, maladapt as Hogg describes it, and it's a slow process to unwind those maladaptations either It's going to be done by a professional because they've picked it up in the first place or you need some guidance from someone that knows what they're doing. Undoing any bad work is going to take time and it's not a process of just changing to what you think it should be and then that's the end of it. I was reading in the Cutting Edge book the dangers of doing that where Hunter Allen was about to go for a two-week training camp somewhere in the Alps and he noticed his seat was a bit bent so he just replaced it with the same model, but it was that body had actually adjusted to that seat. So as soon as he popped a new seat on, it meant his knee was out of alignment, and then in the end, his knee was totally fucked. So that's the thing. 
you can't just throw something on and then change it. It needs to be a process that should be guided by an experienced hand. So moving on and talking about neurology here, it kind of just extends from the point of if there is any maladaptations that have been made while you've been on the bike and then taking that concept and then what do you do with your bike? Because the bike fit itself or having someone look at you on a bike and adjusting your position really is just a band-aid. It's not actually solving the structural problems or mobility problems or stability problems that you may have and you have to work on these. Hogg actually recommends spending around 25% of your training program on structural maintenance and improvement. I bet the majority of semi-pros, and I'm dead set guilty for this as well, so I'm talking to myself just as much here, do not do anywhere near that. And I really hope this pushes you because it's pushing me back in the direction of spending more time on working on my stability, mobility, and structural maintenance. But the importance of this, he links to neurology. And so how the brain actually functions when it comes to sending signals out to the body. He defines fitness in this sense, and he defines neurological fitness as the measure of how accurately signals from the brain travel to their destinations around the body and how accurately feedback from the body gets back to the brain. So neurological fitness is fundamental. It means that everything is firing perfectly. There's no misfires because everything lines up and the signals can get to where they need to be going. This is also going to mean performance at the end of it. But the sole determinant of neurological fitness is structural fitness. In other words, adequate posture, flexibility, and core strength. So it comes back to that idea that you have to spend time on adjusting your body before you even get on a bike. I know I've talked about it before, that you have to do this before you even get in the gym because then you're going to be just doing more damage. You're going to build on any imbalances that you have and your body's going to overcompensate and you're going to do damage. So this is the exact same thing. The trouble is we're cyclists, so we spend so much more time on a bike itself that the potential to do some damage to ourselves is so much higher. It's just crazy that we don't go out and all get bike fits tomorrow. This is the thing. What we can work on tomorrow, we can go back and work on through, you know, like a functional assessment. We can then find our weaknesses and then work on one weakness, one thing, or you have to work on one thing until it improves. And as far as fitting yourself to a bike, I really hope that your mind is shifting towards thinking as bike fitting as you're working within your structural realities. Or if you're not, or you're trying to push yourself into an aerodynamic position, that it's matched by your willingness to work on them. Because otherwise, you're going to find that you're going to have structural damage somewhere down the line. It it may not happen straight away, but at some point, it going to happen. Exact same thing as lifting heavy weights when you're overcompensating. You have to get your body right. And I do believe that Hogg spends a lot of time in his assessments on the body first. So he would be able to figure out before you even get on a bike where he believes you're going to have trouble and then focus on that. Now, this is the whole issue when it comes to a system in the first place. There is no system that can tell you that one person's going to have this and that and this, and what if they have a bit of this and a bit of that? And, you know, like there is no way that you can actually account for every single person on the planet, throw them into a system, and then pop them out at the other side with a perfect bike fit that will never need adjusting again. 
That's the crazy thing, and that is what Hogg is addressing in this speech. I really hope that you seek out and read this on his website. His website has a ton of great articles on there as well. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's been around for a long time. It sounds like there's a bit of bromance here, and I've got to be honest, there is, because he just speaks so clearly, and he speaks right to me when he's talking about get your body right. If you want longevity in the sport, if you want longevity and you want to feel good, you don't want grotty feeling joints, you don't want to be unbalanced or inflexible. You want to have a supple body that can handle the rigors of training and the odd unevolved position of being on a bike and even being in a chair. It's bigger than just the bike. It's what you do in everyday life, which brings me back to why I thought about it in the first place, because my neck was bloody sore because I made a stupid mistake. But Anyway, I hope you get something from that. I do want to make one final note, though, that I removed a whole section on cleat placement. There's a whole section in that speech on cleat placement, and I didn't remove it because I disagree with it. It's actually quite the contrary. I really, really do agree with it, but I felt that I just couldn't do it justice if I was just to pop it in this episode. So I'm going to revisit it at a later date and do a whole episode on it. So look out for that in the future, analytics.com. It's a hosted web application that does exactly what the name suggests, Cycling Analytics. It's got a good-looking user interface that's clean, straightforward, and aligned with 2013. It's not just a pretty face, though. It's got some serious power as well, which is why it's aimed squarely at serious cyclists. In my mind, it's built for the semi-pro. A major shortcoming of the software is the ability to input training rides before you do them. Apparently, it is on its way, though, which will make this a real competitor to what is currently available in this space. It's capable of producing power curves and training load. It also includes Strava integration. I spent an hour on the phone with David, the founder of Cycling Analytics, and the future sounds exciting. David is everything that I hoped he would be, smart, analytical, and thinking big. I hope to have him on the show in the near future, but for now... You can go and join cyclinganalytics.com for free and use it. So I'd get in there and have a play before you have to pay for it to decide whether you're into it or not. And while it is still light on features, talking to David has reassured me that it won't stop there and it will continue to evolve. It kind of raises an interesting point, which is the future of cycling data and making the data meaningful to training without a steep learning curve but instead stepping over the process of learning the minutiae of power and other forms of data, but still using it to steer your training. That is the future, and I think cyclinganalytics.com is a step in this direction. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's the infamous Chloe Hosking, the high-tech products writer. She took a stage win in the Ladies Tour of Oman and second overall By the way, Chloe, it seemed that everybody at the men's medal presentation at the Cyclocross Worlds thought the exact same thing as you. The medals and jersey will be presented by Mr. Pat McQuaid, president of the UCI. (laughs) Yes, that Pat McQuaid is a dick. I'm looking forward to seeing what this year holds for you, Chloe. So good luck and sprint well. And that's it. Till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 